Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. My name is Rich Butt. Um, it's my pleasure to be with you in a pretty different capacity to normal. Um, my wife, Lucy, and I have been at Christchurch London for about 18 months now. Um, there's a lovely picture of us at our wedding. I just put that in this gratuitous because we just looked amazing. Uh, <laughs> we've been here for about 18 months now, and um, this is the church that we didn't really know we were looking for, but that we are incredibly glad that we found or that you found us or some combination of the two. Um, Lucy's an events manager uh, working for a man- management company, and I'm the worship pastor for Christchurch London. So that means I'm responsible for all of these lovely musicians and singers that you saw up here earlier, um, all across the church, and many, many other things beside. Um, Basically, Lucy's the organized one, and I'm the creative. Uh, So essentially, if you ever hear of anything that's like greatly organized or done well from the Christchurch London worship team, it's probably because Lucy's taken one of my ideas and made it way better. Um, heavily edited my ideas. Um, it's one of the great beauties of, uh, of marriage that you kind of get to support one another's weaknesses, and she certainly does that for me. Um, so if you have ever seen me at the service before, it's probably with a guitar around my neck and a mic in front of my face singing. Um, I really, really, really love to do it. Um, leading corporate sung worship is one of the great pleasures of my life, but um, it's really great to be here kind of talking today as well. Um, So we're right slap bang in the middle of a series on the life of King David. Uh, David was known as a worshipper and his life has uh, pretty significant implications for my own life as a worship pastor, um, but it has pretty big application for all of us. Um, in the in the text that we're looking at today, um, at first we'll see David body a lifestyle of worship badly, um, and then we'll see him embody it well, and uh, and we'll hear how that can have some uh, application for us. Um, it's worth saying that when I talk about worship today, um, I'm talking about the response of our lives to God, um, how we show Him how much He is worth to us. And uh, this idea permeates every aspect of our lives. You know, we talked about before about our our financial giving. It says something about where our hearts are and what we believe is important. Uh, But it also extends to how we behave in our relationships. uh, Whether we choose to serve in church, either on the worship team, which is great, you should try it out, um, or on the welcome team or in production and many, many places in church you you can serve. It says something about our worth how much we have worth God, Uh, how we pray and sing when we gather corporately or how we undertake our studies or jobs. Um, It isn't about music. And I realize whenever we talk about worship in the context of church on the Sunday, we often can say, now we're going to have a time of worship. But uh, sometimes that can just be code for the musical part of stuff. Um, But I'm not really talking about that today. Although corporate sung worship is a context in which David's life has much application, there's much that we can learn from that particular thing that will have an impact on other parts of our lives. So our text for today is 2 Samuel chapter 6, and it's a pretty uh, meaty chunk of scripture. It's meaty like Bovril. And uh, so I'll read it, and it will come up on the screen behind me. Um, And uh, it's this. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000, He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. 
They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. Uh, no SPD, but, you know, hey, what can you say? It's a pretty long time ago. Uh, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act, and therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained there in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would do. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord and I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the end of her death. Some pretty uh, intense parts of that scripture. And uh, we're going to talk about those a little bit later, but um, let's start off by giving a little bit of uh, context as to explain why was David even bringing this thing called the Ark back to Jerusalem in the first place. Now, the, the Ark was a, a you, can, you can find it in scripture, but it's, it was a, a box that was constructed out of a very specific type of wood that God had commanded Moses and Aaron to build it out of, and it was, had a gold top and had all this different stuff inside of it that just related to the worship of God in a, a, an Old Testament context. Um, but the ark was not just symbolic of God's presence with his chosen people, but it was in fact where his presence resided on earth. Uh, it was the one thing that distinguished the Israelites from all the other people groups of the day. Their God chose to dwell amongst them. And it was a picture of what God's ultimate plan for his relationship with mankind would be in the future. 
At this point in the story, David had been king for seven years, um, and the ark had been away from the Israelites for 20 years. It had been uh, during the time of fighting between the former king Saul and the Philistines, who were the Israelites' biggest foe at that, at that time. The, the, the Philistines had captured the ark, and for seven months they had it in different, of their, different cities, and um, because they didn't know how to deal with the presence of God, and we'll uh, speak a little bit more about that later, they... Uh, plagues kind of happened in their cities and and they thought that they were going to be able to be blessed by having the ark Um, but it didn't quite work out for them so they uh, decided they'd just give it back to Israel Um, and then it had been kept in this guy Abinadab's house for about 20 years Um, so then David captures Jerusalem he makes it the capital city and determines that he's going to bring the presence of God bring the ark back to Jerusalem now, at first glance, first glance, this kind of seems like an act of devotion from the highest order. This guy's, you know, gone about making his, his kingdom safer by defeating his enemies. He's, he's set up his household in Jerusalem. He's built himself a house and he's built all this other stuff. Um, and now he wants to bring God's presence back. And so it seems like kind of kind of makes sense that you would do that, right? Um, David had been spoken about previously in Scripture, and he was a prophesied king to come. He was uh, a man after God's own heart, Scripture says. He's a man of virtue, steadfast in character and humble in heart. Um, Liam spoke a few weeks ago about the difference between King Saul and the difference uh, uh, between King Saul and David. David was a man humble in heart, as I said. Here, however, we see David say and do two different things. Um, and referring to returning of the ark, in, in 1 Chronicles 15, it says that he gathered all the rulers and the leaders of Israel together. And, uh, and he says, if it seems good to you and is the will of the Lord our God, let's go and let's return um, the ark back to Jerusalem. Now, David says this. Let's inquire of the Lord. Let's see if it is the will of our Lord God. But there actually isn't really any mention that he or any of the other people that he gathered together actually did that. They didn't spend time asking God whether this was something that he would have them do. They kind of determined for themselves that it seemed like, kind of just felt like the right thing to do. David's first mistake in this story was making a decision and a plan for what to do without consulting God in the first place. In a way, through his actions, he was saying, I'm independent and I'm the king. I don't really need to ask God, seeing as I'm his chosen one, I'll probably make the right decision anyway. David was seeking to do something for God without asking God how he should do it. Back in Numbers 4, God had given Moses and Aaron very clear instructions about the ark and all of the things and the the different materials and the holy items surrounding it and how they were supposed to be dealt with. They were supposed to be covered in cloths and carried in a particular way, and and, and even then, only carried by a particular group of people, these people that were set apart specifically for that job called the Levites. But it had been 20 years since anybody in Israel had even seen the ark. We see later in in, in other places in Scripture, David said it's it's been a long time since during the entire reign of Saul. We didn't even inquire of the Lord. We didn't even look for where he was. So it's conceivable that it had kind of gotten to the place where maybe they desired to have God's presence back with them, but they were far from knowing what to do when he was there. When Lucy and I were first dating, we took a uh, thing called a love language test, which I don't know if some of you are familiar with that. Um, it's kind of, uh, 
you find out the hierarchy of uh, how each other expresses and receives love. Um, it's either through physical touch, quality time, words of affirmation, gifts, um, or acts of service. And uh, since we've been married, I've actually discovered that there is indeed a sixth love language. Um, and that love language is ambient lighting. Um, if Lucy goes away for a day or more on work or something and uh, returns home, pretty much I have all of the lights on um, because I like to see things. And uh, she'll return and she'll switch off all the main lights and put on all the little lamps and stuff. And she'll ask me, why do I have all the lights on? Um, it's a silly point, but the point is this. When you have been away from your beloved for a while, it can be really easy to forget what they love and how they desire to be shown your love. If we want to know how we should honour God with our lives, we should probably ask him and see what he has to say on the subject. Let's think about musical worship for a while and singing songs of praise and worship to God. When we speak about that, what's the first thing that springs to mind? Is it, oh, I wish they'd stop singing that song. I don't like that one. I wish they'd sing something new. There's, there's a song on this new album that I've heard that I really like. You know, we each have a style of music that we prefer. We may find it helpful for a worship leader to encourage us to dance or sing louder. Or you might prefer to be left space to reflect. One might prefer lots of structure and another loads of space for spontaneous just outpouring of fresh songs and praying and all of that kind of thing. But have you ever stopped to ask God, what would you have me do? How would you have me worship you, God? And what if we found out that what God wants is a humble heart that is open to him, that seeks to grow closer to him and learn more about his character? What if God would have us live in a way that honours the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross? And what if God would have us live our lives in a way that benefits those in need around us? The reality is that those things and many, many more are all in Scripture. As part of what Scripture tells us is part of what it means to live our best lives and have the kind of fullness of experience of life that, that God would have for us. So David sought to carry the presence of God how he thought best to do it. He gathered all of these people together, 30,000 men, it said. And they placed the ark on a new cart carried by oxen that were, and they were celebrating with all they had. Again, at first glance, you'd kind of be forgiven for saying, what's, what's wrong with this picture? Um, they were being exuberant and celebrating, fulfilling many of the commands in Scripture to worship God to the fullest of our ability. It's all throughout the Psalms. And the cart was being carried by oxen, which was the single most valuable animal one could own in ancient Israel. Perhaps David thought that God would be honoured by their display of celebration and using one of their most valuable possessions to carry his presence. Except we soon see that the best that man can offer leaves a lot to be desired. The oxen stumble, man's best innovations cannot hold the presence of God. And Uzzah is complicit in David's mistake by trying to stabilise the ark with his own hands. In doing so, Scripture says that God's anger burned against Uzzah. 
It's pretty hard to to read stuff like that in scripture. It's not it's not nice to think that because this guy reached out and touched a box that he God struck him down and killed him. It's hard. It's hard to come to terms with stuff like that. And it seems like a really, really extreme response from God. I mentioned earlier that God had kind of given clear instructions to Moses and Aaron in Numbers 4 about how the ark was meant to be dealt with. But just because God gave him a rule book still doesn't feel like that's explanation enough. Doesn't, doesn't give reason to why maybe God did this. See, God didn't give those rules in order to just impose his kind of like control on us, but in order to protect us. And I'll use a story from Joshua Ryan Butler's book, The Pursuing God, to, to illustrate this. See, God needs to protect us from his presence because he is holy. But what does that even mean? Some people think of holiness as self-righteousness, like some kind of uptight do-gooder looking down their stuck-up nose at all the filthy sinners polluting all the air around them. But it actually means unique, dedicated to, set apart. Think of it like the sun. It's set apart in our solar system. It's unique and there's nothing like it. The sun does not need us to exist, but we do need the sun to exist. The sun is powerful and radiant, and this radiant power is brilliant from a distance. But if we get too close, we better have the right kind of suit on, the right kind of protection in order to withstand that kind of power. You could say that in a way the sun is holy. Similarly, God is unique. As creator, he is completely distinct from all of creation. He's powerful and radiant and he brings light and life to our world. God doesn't need us to exist. But scripture says in him we live, move and have our very being. God's character is true, pure and good and unfailingly so. The sun analogy kind of falls short a little bit though because in one very important respect, we weren't made to live on the sun. But we were made to live in the immediate presence of our creator. Our bodies are like spacesuits designed for the sun. We were made to dwell immersed in God's glory. The Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But our rebellion, our sin, all of the things that separate us from God and his presence has kind of, if you like, torn the fabric of our spacesuit and let all the cold, dark matter into our lives that kind of leads to death. Because sin kind of punches a hole in that spacesuit. Our bodies are not the problem, but sin is. To stand in the immediate presence of God in this condition is like waltzing too close to the sun in a ripped suit. This is why God warns his people not to get too close to his immediate presence when they're not in the right condition. It's not that God's afraid of getting tainted, but it's more that we can't stand the heat of his potent divinity and perfection in our corrupted state. But fortunately, God doesn't leave us in that state because he sends his own son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. To take that upon himself so that we might be able to live in the glory of the presence of God and not fear 
what happened to Uzzah. Now, as you read the text, you can see, you can just feel David's sense of shame kind of oozing off the pages. He was supposed to be the king who would do things the right way. You know, he was a prophesied, the prophesied king. And it wasn't just that he was supposed to know the law, but he was supposed to be like in his heart and speak the law and do the law like it was his own thoughts and his own ideas. How, how, how could it be that this man would fail so utterly? You can just hear him say, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He's ashamed. He can see the consequences of his pride and disobedience. I've been in situations like that before where you shock yourself with a decision or an action that you take. And uh, I've, been, I've been a Christian since I was six years old. And um, I've always known that God, or for most of my life, I've known that God loves me. But then you make these, you, you maybe make some decisions that you think you shouldn't have. And um, you think, how, how could God ever possibly love me? when I've done stuff like this. But just as God has a plan for restoration for the whole earth, he has a plan to restore and redeem and transform you and I. And we see this. He had a plan to restore David. God will always bring about his plans and purposes through the transformation of women and men. David was just at the root of it. He was just an ordinary dude, really, just like your eye. We start to see a good example of what approaching God in the right way looks like. And strangely enough, we actually get the first example from a Gentile. Now, Gentiles were uh, not God's chosen people of Israel. These were men and women that would have had no idea about what the law was and about how to approach God and all of these things that we talked about before, the many ways that the cross should be on here and all this kind of stuff. And, um, And this guy, Obed Edom, humbly accepts houses and honors the presence of God in his home for three months. And his whole household experiences a divine blessing as a result. Chances are he would have heard what happened to Uzzah. And yet he still chose to accept the presence of God in his home. You know, sometimes we can hear or even experience ourselves of negative experiences of Christianity or church because of people that are broken like each of us. And sometimes we can let that stop us from drawing closer to God because of the bad things we hear. But just like Obed-Edom, we too can experience the blessing of what it means to live a life that is completely transformed if we too choose to humbly accept, house and honour the presence of God in our own lives. And the fact that Obed-Edom was a Gentile not one of God's chosen people, but yet here he houses the presence of God and is blessed by it. It's kind of a picture of what God's ultimate plan was always to be. We see in scripture that he says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. No separation, there's no, this person's chosen and that all flesh. That's always what God's ultimate plan was. But we see David come back after he hears that Obed-Edom's household has been blessed by the ark. He returns after three months with a completely different heart. He's a changed man. His unwillingness is transformed 
into resolute rejoicing. In Psalm 132, we see a man that has inquired of the Lord and has returned with promises from God. He knows what he needs to do and how he needs to do it. If ever we are unsure of our direction in life, our response should be to run into the everlasting arms of God. In him, we find the stability and wisdom to see with correct perspective and to know where to go next. David allowed God to point out where he took a wrong turn and he's gotten him back on the right track. And now we see the presence of God is being carried in the correct manner, in the prescribed way, so scripture tells us, rather than on a common cart. As an external example of his humility and of his elevation of God's holiness in his own heart, David isn't wearing his kingly robes anymore. But instead he's wearing the humble linen garment of a priest. Here we see David has been willing to remove anything that would hinder him from worshipping God with all his might. He removes his pride and the symbols of his status as king and dances with all his might rejoicing as the ark was being brought to its rightful place in the correct way. Here we see another example of how David is a foreshadowing of Christ, denying himself to the glory of God the Father. We read in Philippians 2 as he's speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, part of approaching God in the right manner, in reverence, is the recognition that he deserves nothing less than our best and our all because he has done nothing less than give us his best and his all. See, David didn't dance because of some kind of rule or stipulation that he must, even though there were loads of things about how they were supposed to, you know, carry things and all that. There was nothing about you must dance. Instead, he danced from the overflow of a joyous, thankful and honouring heart. And you see the people follow suit. There's kind of no mention that anybody else danced, um, which even by today's standard is a pretty uh, extremely high expression of joy. How many of us just dance because we're just happy? I don't know about you. I don't often stand in my house and if I uh, decide that, I mean, the only situation I can think of is when uh, Lucy might say we're having my favorite thing for dinner, I might do a little, that's my favorite food dance. But um, other than that... um, It said most of us kind of uh, dance to make ourselves feel happy rather than because we are happy. And there's quite a big difference between those two. But seeing David just exuberantly worshipping God, the people join him. They open their mouths and they shout for joy. But Michal sees David worshipping with celebration and despises him in her heart. So we see two very different responses to David's act of worship. How do we respond when we see another person's expressions of joy before the Lord? Do we despise them in our hearts? Or do we follow suit and in our own way worship with all our might? 
See, David's response to Michal is extremely interesting. He's more concerned with what God thinks about what he's doing than what man thinks. He dances in the same place where he made a fatal error before. See, if we allow God to change our perspective, the very places and situations in our lives where we have made our biggest mistakes and our biggest failures, God can make those places a place of celebration and a place of joy and a place of overcoming in our lives because he is about transforming people. That's always been what God has been about. We see that David is turned around from earlier. He was more concerned about what seemed good in his own heart to do. Now he seems more concerned with what God thinks. David then shows us three places where our worship of God is transformative both to us and to others. The first place is privately. So the ark goes into the tent and and David in private before the Lord makes sacrifices and offerings and, and asks that God would bless the people. He's displaying his devotion to the Lord and his desire to spend time in his presence. See, in my own life, I've found that the biggest periods of growth and fruitfulness in my life have been mirrored with uh, giving some of my own time to spending time in the presence of God, just by myself in my own room. It might be reading the Bible, reading a book about the Bible, putting some music on, seeking to worship God, just spending time quietly in his presence. It's part of a cycle of rest that is really important for our health, both emotional and spiritual. And it's one that was mirrored by Jesus, who would frequently retire from the group he was with to pray. If we're to be strengthened by the presence of God, then we need to spend time in it, following David's example of stepping away from the crowds, simply to just minister to God. David returns to his own household to bless them, and that's part of what it means to gather together as the church community, strengthened from our private interactions and conversations with God, we each bring what we have as we gather together to worship. It's what we were doing earlier. David's statements of becoming undignified in his own eyes show something of the vulnerability associated with worship. We must risk feeling undignified in our own eyes and humiliated by our own sense of self-preservation in order to worship God. Now, it doesn't mean that it will look the same for everybody. Just like, in the, just like in the text, you know, not everybody danced. That was just what David did. Some people shouted. Other people played instruments. Um, it's not going to look the same. And so it's not that there's a prescribed way to respond. But the power of our intention is really, really strong. B.B. King was uh, an incredible blues guitarist. Uh, known for his simple yet heart-wrenching guitar solos. And when he played, you kind of heard a man who was connected with, was able to connect his emotion and his experiences with his craft. Um, Why don't we just check out this video for a second and see what I'm talking about.
I don't know about you, that just moves my heart. <laughs> See, what we see there is, is a guy that is capable of taking his experience and uh, plowing it into his craft. And as a result, what we, what we feel is the emotion of what he's playing and what he's feeling. Now, we all have, if we pick up a guitar, all of us have the same access to exactly the same notes that he's got on his guitar. But I certainly know when I play, it doesn't sound like that. But the more that we can connect the intention of our hearts to our worship of God, the more we'll be transformed by his presence. See, what's more important is not our dignity in our own eyes, but it's honoring of God. Scripture says man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Our intention is really important. The next place that we see that David exhibits what, where worship is really important is scattered when we're away from this place. So in a continuation of his joyous overflow, David decides to give food to all the people. Now he gave a cake of dates and raisins and bread and wine and stuff to everybody in Israel. Like that's Imagine giving that much food to, like, everybody that lived in London. Like, that would just be absolutely insane. Think about how much money that would have cost. Just nuts. But that was kind of like a continuation of his sense of just what, how he viewed how much God was worth to him. Now, the food being given out to people was symbolic of the soul nourishing that the presence of God returning to Jerusalem had enacted. It was also a commissioning of the people to return to their homes and places of influence and to bring that same soul-nourishing presence of God with them. You see, if we neglect one or some of these areas, then we'll be lacking. We must be filled with the presence of God to participate effectively in his work of restoration. We must also gather together to encourage one another and proclaim the praises of Jesus. But then we must take love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and humility and self-control into our everyday lives to see the world around us transformed. In a moment, we're going to respond uh, by singing a song that just centers us on the reason for living lives of worship, and that is Jesus. So uh, when the band come back, and uh, I'm going to pray and we'll sing together, but Afterwards, the band will just kind of continue to play. And in those moments after the song, why not take an opportunity to ask God what steps he would have you take next? You don't have to sing. You can sit. You can reflect. You can do whatever you feel like you need to do. But the prayer team will be down here at the side if you, uh, if you would like somebody to pray with. So why don't you stand with me? Lord God, we thank you so much that your plan, even before the dawn of time, Lord God, was to be close with us. We thank you that we get to experience your presence freely. And we ask, Lord God, would you meet us now, Lord God? 
Holy Spirit, would you come and just speak to our hearts? Would you do what you do best and would you guide us and would you transform us to be more like Jesus? We bless you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.